All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This is episode 50 and can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 50. This is going to be about the planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, which is a uh, holiday-type Thanksgiving, trying to get home for the holiday movie. So we're going to release this this Sunday before Thanksgiving, and we hope that your trip is not nearly as trying as, as is depicted in this film. Uh, and I hope that you enjoy this episode for your travels. You can listen to uh, while you're traveling. Also, I wanted to mention that we're going to be doing a Thanksgiving special, and that will be with Dr. Walter Block discussing Poverty, Inc., and uh, we thought that was a good uh, movie to do for the Thanksgiving holiday, so we will release that on the Wednesday, right before Thanksgiving, so you'll have a chance to listen to that during um, Thanksgiving or the day after or the, the long weekend, and then we'll be doing another show after that. So a lot of shows coming at you this week. I think that the Sunday after Thanksgiving is going to be Founder, which is uh, the, the Ray Kroc story about McDonald's starring Michael Keaton, so that should be that should be a really good one. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about a story, a story about a man named Jed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we have a, a project we've been working on called the Libertarian Union. And what that is, is it's a, uh, it's a series of podcast providers in the ANCAP and Libertarian style that have joined forces in a voluntary union. Secession is totally legitimate in this union. And it's eight different providers, Don't Waste Your Hate, Liberty Weekly, Battle for Liberty, The Actual Anarchy Podcast, Wizardly Wisdom, uh, The Ancap Barbershop, among others. And uh, you can find all of those shows listed at libertarianunion.com. And also check out the new artwork. We just updated logos and Facebook pages and all that at facebook.com slash libertarianunion1. And that's the number one at the end of that. In the early days of the Internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, as I said in the intro, this is actualanarchy.com slash 50, our 50th episode. So, you know, break out that uh, champagne and pop the cork on that. And uh, we're getting into the holiday season, so we're doing planes, trains, and automobiles, all about traveling home for Thanksgiving Hopefully your travels are much, much better than uh, as depicted in this film. And we have a returning guest. He was with us for our 310 to Yuma episode, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 37. It's the professional asshole. So, uh, Mr. Asshole, go ahead and uh, just remind the folks who you are and uh, what you do, and then we'll get into the Google description and talk about this movie. Uh, well, howdy. I'm, uh, again, professional asshole, and it's uh, I am a... Uh, 
private investor, accountant, uh, general pain in people's asses, and discoverer of bullshit. So that is what I do professionally. All right, very good, sir. And you also write for us at the site. Uh, there's a, a, a number of articles you've written, and including one infamous one that I was reluctant to <laughs> to publish. Yeah, uh, please, please don't. <laughs> It went, it went a little, it went a little far in a certain direction, and I didn't want to uh, become uh, suffer any repercussions from that. Yeah, no, it's probably better that we didn't publish that one. I just, you know, it was just for the audience to know. It was uh, I, I had to go sit down and listen to an IRS agent uh, discuss his tactics for uh, ensnaring people, usually over, and and this was over relatively minor violations with regard to what the guy found. I mean, he was accused of running a, a pill mill, mostly for Viagra which, you know, you can make all the claims you want morally about whether or not you think that's a good thing. I'm personally, it's a victimless crime, so I couldn't care less. But the violation for which the IRS agent had tagged this guy over was relatively minimal. It was like, you know, $10,000 by digging through this guy's trash for two years until he found enough cash envelopes to know, okay, this guy hasn't technically reported all of his income. Not that he hadn't reported a ton of it, because he had, but just he hadn't reported all of it. And so he wasn't arrested for... You know, the pill mill stuff, it was for not paying his taxes. And, of course, it didn't even work out anyways. And the guy was very gung-ho about kicking in this guy's door, you know, in the early hours of the morning and terrorizing his, his young children and his wife, who were completely innocent, and leaving them destitute. And the money ended up going not to, you know, uh, victims of, of Viagra overdose or anything like that, you know, for this guy's abominable crime of erection giving, but was for, you know, was for, <laughs> right, like, the guy, the guy openly admitted as though there were no problem with this, no conceivable problem with the issue that, uh, oh, he, uh, you know, this money is going to his particular unit of the IRS so that he can buy new interdiction bands and new weapons. And he was even saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get like new Rolexes and new things like this so that, you know, when I go on Facebook market and try to find scammers and things like that, that, uh, I can have a believable fake account and things like that. And it's like, you know, is this guy supposed to be the, the good guy? Are you kidding me? You know, this, I mean, this guy's this guy's just a, you know, he's a mafia boss that pretends to, you know, work for the government. Yeah, well, I mean, they're the biggest biggest gang. And speaking of gangs, uh, isn't that how they nailed Al Capone? Wasn't it some um, financial type tax evasion thing or something like that? Yeah, it was just non, non-reporting of income. Uh, you know, they figured, well, we can't get him on anything else, but we know this guy's making like $5 million a year, you know, but he's only reporting say, you know, 500,000 of it or something like that. Yeah, and then Geraldo uh, broke into his vault <laughs> famously right. and the big nothing burger in there. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, well, you can't win them all, like I guess. a really good article. Why, why, is, why didn't we put it up? Uh, my, my language on it, like the way I, the way I went after this guy, it got, it got personal. It was not just, you know, oh, he's a jerk and blah, blah, blah. It was, you know, uh, I, I accused the guy of, of like, Something. It just. I, I. I. went over the top, and I was. I was mostly just a, a. An angry rant on my part that I turned into a semi-grammatical mess, and you know it was better that it not be uh, published. Um, you know, and again, it's. It's just something that you know we talk about amongst each other, and I could give you the details, but yeah, no, I. I, I don't want this thing published. I don't want anybody else to see it. It's. It was. It was nasty. It was just straight up. You know. Well, don't you think that the. Uh, the. Uh the prisoner population of the United States that has a has a has a vested interest in knowing what kind of scumbags these people are. Uh, I think they do, but the problem is, um, you know, this this is the kind of thing that could get me and everybody else in trouble. So I'm I'm thinking of myself. I'm being a sh- selfish jerk. Oh, okay. Well, if you're just being selfish about it, that's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's so being I, a good, I, good capitalist here. <laughs> exactly. I'm worrying about myself and my family and saying, you know, hey, if you want to, if you want to kiss the IRS's ass, well, go ahead as long as I don't have to. So. All right. All right. Well, let's turn to more cheery subjects, and that is the John Candy and Steve Martin movie. Everyone cool with that? Oh yeah. Debatable. Uh, <laughs> well, it is cheery. Um, oh, you know what? It's I debatable. Have, I gotta find the Google Go description real quickly here. One moment. I had a, a series of other windows open, and for whatever reason, it got changed. So planes, trains, and automobiles—that's what we're talking about. And I believe this is a John Hughes movie. It is from 1987 or so. That's the year I was born. That's about right. Holy cow! You're a youngin', man. I know. I don't look it. All right, so here's the Google description. Planes, Trains, Automobiles, 1987 drama road movie, one hour, 33 minutes, and it plays a lot longer than that, I'll tell you that. Uh, 7.6 on IMDb, 92% Rotten Tomatoes, and 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert back when he was around, and 92% of Google users like and uh, approve of this movie or suggest it, recommend it. And the description reads, as the easily excitable Neil Page, played by Steve Martin, is somewhat of a control freak. Trying to get home to Chicago to spend Thanksgiving with his wife and kids, his flight is rerouted to a distant city in Kansas because of a freak snowstorm, and his sanity begins to fray. Worse yet, he is forced to bunk up with the talkative Del Griffith, played by John Candy, whom he finds extremely annoying. Together, they must overcome the insanity of holiday travel to reach their intended destination. Came out right around uh, Thanksgiving of 1987. Director John Hughes, uh, of course, it's a, it's a Chicago movie. That's kind of his his shtick. Uh, any any qualms with any of the Google description from from you, uh, Robert? Well, I wouldn't say that Steve Martin plays a control freak. I think he plays a guy that's just trying to get home. I, I don't know if he has a whole lot of different personality quirks or you know main personality points that you would point to and go, oh, this guy's this or that. He just seems like a normal dude to me that is dealing with this John Candy character. I mean, his character was revealed by having to deal with John Candy, but I think most anybody would have dealt with John Candy in the same way he did. He didn't strike me as a particularly unreasonable person. Yeah, what, what do you say there, asshole? Um, I actually appreciate Neil Page just because he is the upper middle class sort of gentried account executive type guy that you know, I myself am, and, and I have a lot of similar personality traits with regard to being relatively introverted, straightforward. I, you know, he's talking on the plane about how he likes to, he wants to read in a financial magazine an article that his friend wrote. And, you know, I've, I've had friends write articles in financial magazines and things like that. So it's just, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, man, you know, this, this Neil Page is relatively similar to myself and, you know, yeah, not thinking, oh, this guy's such a jerk. He's just, you know, but I guess maybe to a working class stiff who has to get his life on by being a salesman, by being gregarious or something like that, then it, you know, I might be seen as like this cynical, stiff upper lip sort of a asshole that nobody likes compared to, you know, the guy who just loves getting, you know, uh, you know a Coors Light uh, while watching NFL at a bar or something like that, you know. Yeah, do you see that there's maybe a bit of a, a class clash here it's like the odd couple kind of thing you got this upper middle class guy and this more blue collar though i mean he is a traveling salesman right he's he he's a showering um vice president of sales or marketing or something like that yeah right they've always got a title like that yeah no absolutely and and i do see the class uh class clash that you're you're talking about and i think i mean even the way that that neil is dressed compared to dell dell's got like this parka on and a 
tweed sort of a jacket and you know this you know he, he shops at a big and tall store out in the Pacific Northwest as he mentions and you know Neil's got this classic three piece suit or you know but he's got his he's got his overcoat top hat and the thing he's worried about at the beginning of the movie is getting his gloves back right his, right right and he's got <laughs> his the, expensive leather gloves and he's got a nice watch and all that right which is kind of a garish watch uh, they they show a close up of it and I'm like wow how can you even tell the time on that thing but yeah exactly no it, it was definitely it was definitely for show and not for anything useful. Right, and it plays a pivotal role a little bit later on in the movie. But um, another thing related to the class, uh, you mentioned he, he um, shops at this big and tall in the Pacific Northwest that has a, a chain of like five or six stores. That came up because that's his only uh, credit card. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, no, and what's funny to me is, is you know, even people who make, say, like $50,000 a year household income will usually have multiple credit cards these days, uh, as opposed to back then, you know, and this was even true in the mid-'90s. My father was, you know, fairly well-to-do back then, and he had maybe two credit cards uh, in the mid-90s. Certainly in the 80s, he only would have had one, and it probably would have been a gold card. And then later, when he was making even more money, they finally upped him to a platinum card. I don't even see platinum cards anymore. I just see higher and higher limits. Yeah, it seems as if they've sort of lost the distinction between what, what's a gold, what's a platinum, and what's a black card. I, I've gotten right. a few of those uh, offers, and I'm like, oh, that looks cool. $500 a year. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, you know, minimums of like, you know, $10,000 a quarter or something. So Yeah, indeed. So one of the other things, well, should we start going scene by scene? Because we sort of open with Steve Martin's character in a uh, meeting in New York with like high level executives looking at a marketing campaign and the meeting's just dragging on and on. And they're, um, I guess it would be the CEO is trying to make a decision between three options of the artwork and Steve Martin's got to get to the plane, but uh, the the meeting's just dragging on and on. Right. Yeah, I did think it was interesting how he's supposed to be the guy that can tolerate any amount of nuisance at the beginning. Because he even he even says later when he's talking with Dell, like I could sit in insurance seminars for days with a smile on my face, and they ask me how I can do it. <laughs> right. And, you know, we'll get to that later. But it's you know this guy's supposed to be able to tolerate just about any amount of subtle pain in the ass uh, type considerations where somebody's being, you know, somebody's being indecisive or somebody's being a nuisance or somebody's, you know, making a decision just out of pure habit and emotion as opposed to like by some sort of an analytical basis. And and yet it's finally Del Griffith that just destroys him. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that the difference there is that he has to look up to the CEO because right. he works for the guy versus Dell doing something, maybe something similar, uh, maybe even more annoying, but he can sort of unleash his fury on Dell that maybe he had pent up against his his boss. I don't know. I'm sort of drawing a connection there that maybe he's not there. Maybe, yeah. I I mean, with Dell, certainly he makes makes mistakes that, um, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, when a CEO or somebody who is educated and intelligent makes a mistake, it's usually going to be something like, um, you know, misses or glosses over, you know, a piece of information, and this causes, you know, a negative turnaround, but doesn't necessarily affect your daily life as opposed to Dell. You know, the kind of mistakes he makes are leaving, you know, six packs of beer on a on a vibrating bed, which then explodes all over Neil, and suddenly he's got to sleep the night in, in beer, in piss-warm beer. <laughs> so, Robert, what do you, what do you have uh, from the beginning of the movie? We've got that Kevin Bacon scene, so that's part of that six degrees of separation going on, and he's doing his footloose uh, running through the streets to try to beat... Um, Beat Neil to the to the cab. Uh, yeah, the only thing I would have would be that you know this is pre-smartphones, 
pre-Uber. This is, this is the government controlling the number of taxis in New York City with medallion system. So even though there were a surprisingly small number, comically small number of taxi cabs on the street for New York City at this peak time, I think this would be the time when all the taxi cabs would be out searching for their high ticket, you know, fares. But for the sake of the movie, uh, they're, they're just going to, they need to have the scene where there's only like one to go around at this particular time. And uh, yeah, I would just say that uh, the government artificially restricts the number of taxi cabs. So um, yeah, Uber would solve all these problems or getting out of the way of the market would also solve these problems. Right, because this is one of those peak times when there's a higher demand for for such a thing, and, and there's no, you know, surge pricing involved with the taxis as there would be with Uber. Uh, so you've got a whole lot more demand, but no real market response to that. And so there is this shortage that results, and he's even willing to bargain with another guy who would hail the cab for the right to use the cab. And uh, I think it gets up to $50, and he goes, well, a man who would pay $50 would certainly pay 75 <laughs> <laughs> which seemed a little bit sketchy to me because they just agreed on 50. Uh, but yeah. then John Candy just doesn't, isn't aware of this, and he just hops in and, and uses the cab, and, and then uh, Steve Martin runs after it, uh, all upset and angry. But my whole thought during the whole movie, and, and with many of the scenes, is that technology solves this. Uh, this movie couldn't be, wouldn't be believable if made today, so it sort of ages, ages a lot. Because like you'd said, smartphones, um, easy credit or multiple credit cards, like, like we mentioned, like they're more available now. Uh, Uber, you other pay, things. Yeah, you pay with your smartphone. Well, right, yeah, would, would make this obsolete, this entire premise of this movie. And uh, one other note I want to make, and then, then I'll let the asshole jump in. Uh, this is also related to the class sort of angle on this, you know, because I'm being a good Marxist for, for Thanksgiving here. Uh, it's curious to me that Steve Martin doesn't take the subway. And if, if uh, anyone's familiar with the New York City in the 80s, that's when the subway was full of graffiti, full of gang activity, really run down, really terrible. And this is a guy who has a first-class ticket on the air, airplane. So it totally makes sense to me that he would not take the subway to get to the airport. Yeah, um, and, and that's where Rudy Giuliani made a lot of his fame was by cleaning up the subways by doing what he called the... Um, it wasn't the broken window fallacy, but it was the broken window rule. And in this case, it was, you know, if you tolerate uh, people breaking windows at night, to if you tolerate them breaking a small crime, then you're, they're likely to assume that the rule of law does not exist and therefore willing to take a, a big crime. Whereas if you, you know, arrest people for breaking windows, then suddenly, you know, the graffiti disappears and the crime disappears in addition and blah, blah, blah. Mostly he just had a major police crackdown, but, you know, uh, and mostly on people like homeless people and things like that. But uh, you're, you're right about the, uh, you know, the subways in the 1980s being a real problem. Uh, it, it's funny to me that I think if you were to remake this movie today, you'd have to be doing it where people are the problem, not the technology, right? Or it'd have to be uh, the government involvement with it. So, you know, almost every aspect of air travel that he, uh, that Neil suffers, you know, the timing with regard to taxis, the getting in uh, on plane or the delay, all, this, all that stuff has been improved minimally by technology. He could have gotten a, a text alert that his phone, that his flight was delayed. He could have gotten, uh, you know, complaints or he would have just had his ticket on his phone. All those things would have been uh, figured out long ago. The only thing that's changed is that now we have the TSA, you know, making security not only useless and mostly theater, but also long and arduous. And we have in New York, you know, you're going to have to, you know, 
like if they were to remake this movie today, it'd be something like, well, you know, Uber was did exist, except you know because there was a recent crackdown on Uber by the police. None of the Uber drivers have the sticker on the window, and therefore he accidentally got in the wrong car because the Uber driver arrived but didn't have a sticker, so he gets in the wrong car and it's going to the wrong airport. It'd be things like that. That would be how you'd portray the movie today, as opposed to back then, um, where it's you know conceivably you just have you know incompetency and a lack of efficiency by all the companies involved. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that, that's one thing that really stood out and bugged me about this movie was just the lackadaisical nature of customer service in this movie. It seemed like nobody wanted their money. Nobody really wanted to come out and provide good service. I mean, I take it that this is during the holidays and you know peak times and whatever, but man, that it, at one point I know we're skipping ahead or I'm skipping ahead here, but at one point they get on the I believe it's an Amtrak some kind of train Mm -hmm. and it breaks down like almost immediately. Right. And instead of like Dagny Taggart would do, which would be to send an engine from the opposite direction or from the the same direction and to push the train or to pull the train, they're just like, no, everybody get out and start hiking through a cow field. And maybe you'll get to a road (laughs) where we have, maybe we'll have some buses pick you up. Yeah. My wife, that would just be be atrocious customer service. And if it's Amtrak, then it's like, you know, quasi-government so they can get away with, you know, not having competition, but just propped up by subsidies. But um, overall, I mean, this movie was fairly, for me, it was really implausible just from the idea that, I mean, other than the government issues, which are all completely real, the uh, the lack of care from the uh, customer service angle bugged me. Right, and that even plays back to that first airport scene when he gets on the flight, and the flight attendant's like, well, first class is full, you have to go to the back, and he's like, well, I paid for a first class ticket. And this reminds me of the recent um, kerfuffle that, you know, people had been overbooked on on flights and then had to be removed because they refused leaving, and we did a few articles about that on the site, and uh, uh, they had to physically remove one guy, and they got a little bit too too rough with him or too violent. Yeah. Well, the, the cops did. Right. The, the security people did, not necessarily the, the airline people. But even then, the airline should have known that, that that's the way the cops were going to react is, you know, uh, the cops beat the shit out of people. It's, you know, they don't hold your hand and say, okay, sir, you know, we'll, we'll surge price in this particular instance and pay you $1,200 as opposed to the 400 we had been offering you. No, you know, but like, they couldn't, though. Isn't that right, Daniel? I remember back from the story that the airlines were capped out on the amount they could offer for a chair or for a seat. Isn't that true? Yeah, I believe there was a cap, but I don't know if they had reached that cap uh, in this particular instance. It's a little bit fuzzy to me. But the fact that there's a cap at all is an intervention in you know voluntary options here, right? And well, it was probably an internal control, to be quite honest. There was probably a company policy that limits payouts. It may have been. Um, I'm, I'll have to look back at the story. I'll link it down below in our show notes page, uh, and there's a little bit more detail on it. We had a, an airline pilot also chime in and, and um, help with that article with some of the uh, information that, that was provided, in, you know, the carriage, contract carriage or, or whatever they call it. Um, here, here I am, you know, sounding like super knowledgeable about this, but uh, it's really just because it came up, uh, I, I worked with a, a pilot to piece a, an article, article together. But uh, it, my, my thoughts were, well, it's their airplane. If they tell you to leave, you leave. I mean, you know, you paid. They are going to refund you the money. They're going to pay you more than that. You know, so it's, it's sort of, it's not like you've paid and therefore they must. Because uh, the agreement, every contract has an ability to uh, have a remedy, right, if, if for non-performance. Like, here's what happens if we don't provide you the service. Um, it even says, like, this particular ticket and this particular seat assignment is not guaranteed. It's 
we are selling you that we're going to get you from A to B, but not particularly when we will. It's sort of like to the best of our ability with equipment availability and all of this stuff. Right. Yeah, I've, um, I read things similar to that as well when the story came out of David Chow or whatever his name was. Um, you know, but uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I could add too much to that. Uh, the, the simple solution was, of course, that, um, you know, that they should have, I mean, they could have gone around to people and just started saying, look, you know, anybody willing to give up will get, you know, $800 plus a refund or something like that. And then probably would have been the, the case. Um, I think at some point they just chose and, you know, yeah, I, I agree that it's their airline and they it's technically their private property and they have the right to ask you to, to leave. But, you know, this, it, it, you so rarely would have had to even get to that. And I think even in the circumstance, they didn't need to go where they did. Right, yeah, if they had opened it up to the full plane load of people and said, all right, reverse auction, first first taker, you know, gets on the next flight and gets a 1000 bucks. Right. I'm sure they would have had a lot more, uh, a better resolution and, and, and people willingly doing that uh, without having to get physical in this situation. And it just reminded me of, of that in this movie because Neil Page makes the argument, well, I paid for a first-class ticket and you're going to make me sitting in the cattle car area and of course he has to sit next to Del Griffith who does all these obnoxious things like his dogs are barking so he takes his, his shoes and socks off and you know you can imagine he's, he's a heavier set guy and probably not the best smelling guy right <laughs> yeah he's not using cologne on his feet for no good yeah, for some good reason or something like that you know he walks around all day yeah I was I'm sure um, yeah and I mean later of course the guy the fact that the guy just doesn't stop talking at any point he never you know gives anybody any space. He's always got some sort of an, you know, an anecdote in order to, hey, you know, just three, four hours of, of talking. And from New York to Wichita, it's probably more like five hours of just straight plane flight travel. You know, Neil later complains, didn't you notice that when I was, when I was reading the back of the, when I was reading the back of the vomit bag that I just wasn't interested in talking? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you guys think of the, um, the fact that the flight had to get diverted? to Wichita. I mean, that's sort of outside of the control of, of anyone, right? It's not, you know, you can't land a plane if, if the runway is not open. Um, but it seemed as if the airline wasn't, didn't have any accommodation really figured out ahead of time. Like when I've had flight delays in more recent years, you know, they put you up in a hotel and they, I mean, it's not like they're as transparent with the information as, as they otherwise could be. It always seems like it takes them forever to make the announcement and, and then dole out the, you know, here's your pass for a meal, meal voucher, and here's your, where you're going to stay and, and, you know, go get the, um, the shuttle over there and, and all that. It's always kind of a mess, but uh, they didn't seem to do any of that in this case. I mean, there was a guy sleeping next to the garbage can in the, uh, in the airport in Wichita. And sometimes that still is the case, actually. I mean, uh, this is about a decade ago, but when I was still in college, uh, first time around, so maybe this is about 2007 or 2008, I was traveling from Penn State, which is in State College, Pennsylvania, where you have a small little airport, and I was going to go home for Thanksgiving uh, down in Charlotte, which is about a 500-mile drive, and I've been used to driving it. It's about, it's about an 8- to 10-hour drive, but uh, I, I was going to take a flight this time. And I got from State College to Dulles uh, in Washington, D.C., but then a tropical storm had come through at that time, and, you know, we got delayed. And, you know, I ended up, I ended up uh, it took me about 48 hours to finally get home um, because of the delays. They delayed the flight for 12 hours, and then they canceled it, and then it took me. Um, I had to go and try to find a uh, – I, I grouped up with this guy who was, a, like, an exec with Microsoft, and we drove down to Charlotte. It took us about eight hours just because we were so exhausted that, you know, we had to, like, stop to nap and – get some food and stuff like that. And, you know, I ended up getting dropped off um, about 50 miles away from my house and had to wait for my parents to come get me. 
So I, I actually had a pretty similar experience to this, and it did take me a solid 40 hours to, to get home from only a 500-mile uh, drive. Wow, so this is almost autobiographical for you. That's yeah, funny. well, it's funny because I started off by, you know, at the time at that time in college, I was uh, I was doing a night shift job. So I was, you know, used to, you know, staying up from 11 p.m. until 7 a.m., and my flight was 10 a.m. the next day. So I had already been up throughout the night, and then they cancel, they keep delaying my flight from, like, it was supposed to be noon until midnight, and I'm up the whole time because I'm trying to, like, you know, make sure I don't, I get on this flight and I don't sleep through it or something like that while they're calling for it, and they kept delaying in 15-minute increments for, you know, 12 hours, did not put us up, did not give us food, um, and eventually when it did get canceled, I'm at, you know, 2 in the morning, I'm with this guy trying to rent a car, um, you know, and, and there's this huge hour-and-a-half line to rent cars out of Dulles to get down to wherever you're going. And then you have eight hours in addition. So it was, you know, but that's why I say like, this is a, you know, this is probably more of a people problem than it is a technology problem. It's, it's, you know, um, it, it's, was your Microsoft executive guy severely overweight and wouldn't stop talking? Actually he was. And one of the reasons <laughs> I chose to go with him is, um, at the time I was taking German while I was in college and there was like this German foreign exchange student, but she was only about like 16 or 17 years old. And I had been talking with her in German for about an hour and a half. And she got to talking with this guy who basically was talking to her mostly because he was this 50 year old guy, but very fatherly. He also had like, you know, twin 16 year old daughters or something like that. Um, but when he was offering to drive people, he offered to drive like a car full of people and like it included this 16 year old German girl who didn't know where she was going and like was, and I was like, uh, why is a 50 year old guy offering to drive a 16 year old, you know, somewhere, mm. you know? And so I kind of just sort of, you know, I'd been talking with her and I just sort of butted in. It turns out like he did not have any negative intentions in any way. It's just, but, but I didn't know that. I was sort of like, Oh God, this is like one of those, one of those things where I think I, I think I want to include myself in this conversation just because I want to make sure that, you know, this doesn't turn out bad. So is but, that called white knighting? Is that what that was? I don't know. I, I mean, I was, I was 20, 21 or something at the time, and it was like, you know, but this girl was like 16, so it was you know, a little more than, you know, and I was already engaged, so I didn't really care too much about her or just interested in, I, I honestly was a little little concerned that this guy was maybe not, did not have the best intentions. Yeah, so that, that story reminds me of a couple of things. Number one, um, regarding the technology and whatnot, he still was able to call his wife, right, several times. Right. And your story, you know, you called your parents when you were 50 miles away. Well, there's a point in this movie where he's about 100 miles out of Chicago, and then they yeah. end up staying at this other motel. Why couldn't he just say, hey, wife, load up the kids in the 1985 Chrysler minivan right. and drive down to, you know, Cowfield, Illinois, and come get me? Yeah, it, there is a certain point at which the trip starts becoming a little too ridiculous. Like when you're, when he finally made it to St. Louis by the end of the first day of travel, he should have been able to get back to Chicago within four or five hours minimally, right? Whether he got a flight out of St. Louis, he had the rental car issue, and then those eventually got done. But St. Louis is only about, it's technically about 300 miles from Chicago. But even on 1980s roads with 55 miles an hour, like worst case scenario, you know, and when they, when the car eventually burns on the freeway, there's a sign in the background that says Chicago was only a hundred miles away from where they were currently at. And a hundred miles is like two hours. It's not that much. So right. yeah, he, he could have said, look, you know, it got to a point where it was just like the first day is believable. The first 24 hours where, you know, the, uh, the train breaks down and the bus breaks down, then he gets screwed with the rental car type thing. That's all believable. But when he's a hundred miles away from Chicago, staying at a, motel in the middle of nowhere and has no money and has no car, just 
Like at that point, he that that's where things start becoming really unbelievable because they're just dragging it out. Right. Yeah. Because after the car burns, then they stay at that other motel and they're a hundred miles away. And he doesn't have his credit cards. They're all melted. He doesn't have any money. So that's when you make that phone call to the wife and say, "All right, you know, I have a quarter. Use the payphone." <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that technology existed, and he even used it in, I think, St. Louis, where he was like not even touching the phone because it was like too too nasty, too disgusting to touch the phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, let's slide it back in time just a little bit to when they first get into Wichita, and Dell, he's he's an adept traveler, so he got the he booked a hotel room right away as soon as they landed, uh, and then they get a taxi cab to this motel or hotel or whatever. And it struck me that this is a market-type taxi cab. It's like all tricked out. It's got uh, all this decorative stuff in it. The guy's playing music. He's kind of doing his own thing. Uh, he's kind of a weird dude. He was taking him on a tour of Wichita at night, so they can't really see anything anyway. But right. it just struck me as the big contrast between this automaton style, you know, every taxi cab's the same versus this individual kind of one. And I don't know if that's like intentional. I think he was just trying to make Wichita look like super hick and super weird, um, but also super like skeezy because their hotel room gets broken into and they get robbed. Yeah. Uh and I think we end up seeing the guy who robs him like the next day. He's just some teenage kid who's like making out with his girlfriend in public, which there's two instances of that in the movie. And both of them are, it's, it's, you know, if you're doing that, it's, it means to say you're sleazy. You're like, you know, kind of a, you're kind of gross, which debatably maybe. Yeah. Do you think that it was on them or on the hotel? Cause I think Robert, you had made a note to me that there was no additional lock on the um, hotel door, right? Just the standard lock. There wasn't the chain or the deadbolt. Yeah, yeah, it's just a doorknob lock, which I've never been in a hotel, no matter how skeezy. I've stayed at a few skeezy hotels in my life, and there's never not been either that slide deadbolt thing or a chain at least. Are we talking but, hour, mean, hourly rates here? Yeah, <laughs> hourly rates, minutely rates. I mean, we're, th- a lot of things, unfortunately for me, happened in this movie that seemed to just, just for plot reasons, just to service the plot, just to have these guys have a whole lot of obstacles to get to get through and get past and whatever and have, you know, hijinks and whatnot ensue. And unfortunately, they were fairly unbelievable for me. I mean, I would have rather had the, the crook, like, noticed them when they walk in the hotel and say, oh, maybe these guys got some money. Because otherwise, I don't, even, I don't even remember seeing the crook. He just appears to break into random hotel rooms and hopefully have people have some cash on them. I mean, that seems like a, a non-thief thing to do, like a whole lot of risk and not a lot of reward. Right, they should have shown him casing them or, or considering them easy marks or something. Or at least, you know, maybe they're paying for the hotel room and he, you know, opens up his wallet and there's a whole bunch of cash in there and the thief just happens to be sitting, you know, behind, kind of like looking over his newspaper or something. Something right. in the 80s style to at least right. say, oh, these guys are a mark. Right, because they pay, they pay with credit cards and there's that, uh, the mix-up with the cards, right? Yeah, right. Which pl- plays into a little bit later I wanted to make a point on, but continue. Yeah, so then the, the thief just randomly picks a hotel room and gets lucky and doesn't wake anybody up and is the easiest hotel room to ever to break into with like a, a knife and he just kind of sticks it in the, the key keyhole. And um, yeah, and then uh, hijinks ensue, I guess, with the lack of funds and whatnot. And then they, you know, then they um, accuse each other of stealing from them, which I thought was perfectly legitimate. I mean, they didn't know that they had been robbed, so... Yeah, you must have robbed me. But anyway, uh, it just it just led to you know plot points and dialogue and drama where it's almost inconceivably. I mean, this movie should have been called like a series of improbable events. I I didn't believe 
I, I could take a few of the things, like the finding a taxi was still an issue for me. I still think that there would have been tons of taxis on that street. I've seen pictures of New York, especially back in the 80s, where the taxi to regular car ratio is something like 70 or 80 percent. So it's just like taxis and limos all over the place and hardly a regular car. But whatever, it's a movie. Uh, but yeah, the, the hotel break-in was, was another problem for me. Yeah, what did you think of the, the next day when the taxi cab driver sends his cousin or nephew to uh, pick him up in his pickup truck, and he's got the, the wife who's holding the baby, and he's like, oh, she can get it. She'll get that trunk up in the back, no problem. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> that was one I of think, the few things that I really enjoyed. It was really funny, but it goes to your point earlier where they were trying to make Wichita look super hick because that's yeah. supposed to be the motel owner's son, and the motel owner doesn't speak with a with a – terrible accent you know he seems to just be like a regular guy who owns a uh you know motel and his son comes out like yeah the train don't come out of here unless you hog or cattle but you know talk to my skinny ass wife over here she pushed the baby out of her sideways so like, <laughs> you know like um you know i don't know he's got this super hick accent compared to like his dad who's just sort of like del griffith you seem like an upstanding gentleman let me get you a room for the night you know like you know like it doesn't seem, you know, it's like my kids, my kids have the same accent I do approximately. Yeah, it was a bit ridiculous, but at least, and, and I see your point about making Wichita look hick, which, yeah, I'm kind of sick of those stereotypes too, but at least it gave the movie some character, some kind of flavor to it, where you kind of remember that scene. I mean, it's, it's such a ridiculous scene that I enjoyed it. So like, yeah, I'm going to have this, this little woman pick up this giant trunk I, I, that was the, the one funny scene in the entire movie for me. I didn't think anything else was funny, but that one was. Yeah, what I did you guys? The, oh, I, thought the Ray, I thought the Ray Charles scene um, with Dell and the getting his jacket caught was pretty funny as well. You know, and the whole going down the highway with Dell turning into the devil and stuff like that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, why he wouldn't stop and be like, "All right, both of my hands, I can't." do the steering wheel. So maybe I'll turn to the side of the road and, and deal with this rather than, you know, risk death. Right, exactly. I think that had a lot to do with um, revealing about Dell's character that he just doesn't, he doesn't think uh, beyond the moment. So it goes back to like the beer on the bed where it's like, if you had put any thought into that, that would have been the case. Or, you know, if you had negotiated with the taxi cab driver, he wouldn't be driving you around Wichita at midnight trying to, you know, bilk you for every scent that he possibly can or you know same thing um with the uh with even the rental car i'm sure you're gonna bring it up with the switched credit cards you know like you know call up the credit card company and ask for a number or you know something like that or yeah, yeah there are just any number of of real world actual things that human beings would do in that situation that, that didn't get done for to service the plot and for like whatever kind of comedic effect and it it just it just—it didn't. The characters were so stupid, especially with the driving down the road and driving backwards down the road and all that. That it just—I just started to hate the characters, and that's never a good sign. I mean, I, I know it, 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 maybe this movie wasn't made for me and someone who doesn't deal with um, a lot of travel issues a lot. I, I think people could have really identified with it more if you're doing that. But for me, the characters were just so dumb that I would just ended up hating them. I wanted them to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> what did you guys think of um, Neil Page 
I think it's in St. Louis where he um, there's no flights available, so then he goes to try to rent a car, and there's no car there, and it goes back to the customer service thing. The car's not there, and there's no way for him to get back to the um, rental counter, and so he, like, trudges across the highway and falls down the icy slope and almost gets hit by a car. And then he gets to the counter and talks to Edie McClure. He's like, there's no fucking car in the fucking spot where I fucking tried to get a fucking car. And, you know, he was, like, totally rude to her. Yeah. I mean, this is like a guy who finally kind of snapped, right? Because he, he took that out on her, and I think inappropriately, right? I mean, sure, her company didn't have a car there, but uh, he certainly wasn't, like, the customer's always right at, at that in how he, uh, how he engaged with her. I mean, it's not really an ANCAP-y thing, but I think that she would have every reason to not want to deal with him, uh, with him acting like that. And then when, of course, he, out of frustration, destroyed his rental contract, and this is, you know, before a lot of... Um, Technology would have solved for this. Uh, they would have been able to look it up in the computer or would have been on his phone or whatever. But because he had torn up his contract, he's like, well, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand the frustration only because I've been there. Um, you know, where it's, you know, like I've been, I've been up for 40 hours straight now. Don't, you know, just don't fuck with me. But um, at the same time, yeah, technically speaking, you know, she as an individual uh, doesn't have a duty to take this either as a, as a representative of the company or just generally... But I mean, I, so I mean, the whole scene—this whole scene—is pretty famous simply because that scene, in and of itself, is what gets the movie an R rating compared to uh, anything else. Everything else about it is PG, basically. Um, but yeah, I like that scene only because I've, I, I've been there. But technically speaking, yeah, she could have thrown him out and said like, "Well, too bad, you know, get out of here." And as a as a plot point, you know, or as a as a you know suggestion for people in the future, you know, if he had been nice in that circumstance, he probably would have gotten pretty far and gotten some sympathy, but. Because he came up and was like, you know, fuck you. Uh, he, uh, you know, she, she was happy to say fuck off in return. Right, and this reminds me of that famous uh, Seinfeld episode where he talks about the rental car and like, well, you made the reservation, and I made a reservation for a car, so you should have a car here when I have come to get the car. You know, his whole bit. But it also is similar, I think, to an airline seat where it's uh, equipment availability and, and all this stuff. Like, I've had a situation where they're out of whatever car I had reserved. Um, and I think that's just because they only have so many and supply and demand and they haven't really figured out how to allocate them or shit happens, you know, a certain car maybe didn't make it back in time or needs to be serviced or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's just a general principle in life. You know, and to some extent, we're, you know, we're living in a fallen world and there are scarcity of resources and, you know, these companies are making predictions based on estimates, but estimates aren't always seen. They have to live by marketable rules, which means sometimes they have excess and sometimes they have shortage. Uh, but a you know, general rule is, you know, you, you got to have some aspect of go along, get along, because you know most it's going to benefit you 90% of the time, and it's not going to hurt you except maybe a few. You know, yes, maybe 10% of the time, you know, they'll perceive you as being a little too pushover, but that's it. You know, it's and it's a business principle. I mean, it's a business principle is you know, keep a smile on your face simply because you never know when this person's going to be, you know, a customer or you never know when this person's, you know, it just does not, it just doesn't help you to be an asshole, even if you've had a really bad day, because that person hasn't had a bad day. Right, yeah, and that's a good life lesson, because you never know, um, the person you're interacting with, if you're just coming upon them, you don't know if they're having a tough day already, you know, so if you're going to come at them all shitty, I mean, who knows how they're going to react. It's, it's amazing to me that, you know, my moniker on your website is the professional asshole and I'm giving advice on how not to be an asshole. <laughs> well, I mean, it's your specialty, right? <laughs> it is, no. It's the one so, thing I'm really good at. <laughs> so uh, related to 
how this whole scene with the um, the rental car not being there happens, he had just parted ways with Dell, right? And they decided to go their own way. And so Steve Martin's character has this expletive-laden tirade with uh, Edie McClure, and then he goes out to get a taxi all the way to Chicago from St. Louis. And the taxi dispatcher guy, or, or I don't even know what you'd call him, but he's like there at the airport and he's coordinating the taxis. He's like, you want all the way to Chicago? That's crazy. And Neil's still being a dick to him, or you know, being a dick. And so the taxi guy punches him in the face, and uh, he falls into the roadway and almost gets hit by a car. The car happens to be Dell having rented a car using Steve Martin, Neil's uh, credit card. What do you guys think of that? Naughty, naughty. Um, yeah. Uh, well, this is another thing that would be solved by technology, of course. Um, even if he only just realized that, oh, oh, I've got this guy's credit card. Let me call up my credit card company, or I can call up him and say, oh, I've got yours, you've got mine, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, I mean, if this is the only way to pay for something, and then he intended to pay it back, um, as long as he had a reasonable expectation for Steve Martin to approve of his use of it in that situation, I would say it's not theft. But I don't think he did. So I, I tend to lay on the lines of that he was stealing. I agree with you, Rob, that, you know, if um, it's like if you find somebody's wallet on the on the pavement, you know, and, you know, you it, you have to you have to spend 50 of their dollars in order to ship it back to them with security and insurance. It's not it's not theft for you to have taken the 50 dollars out and then maybe even compensate yourself a little bit for the time. But, you know, to take the guy's credit card and spend it on, you know, frivolous items and then give it back to him afterwards. Yeah, obviously that would be theft. And I, I mean, I would probably give the benefit of the doubt to Dell. He doesn't seem like a sleazy kind of guy, maybe a little silly, a little too, uh, a little too gregarious, but he, um, he doesn't seem like the kind who would screw over Neil just because, um, you know, it, it seemed like he was genuinely like I was planning on sending it back to you with interest you know, when I had the opportunity, I, I would have given him the benefit of the doubt on that. But, yeah, he's putting himself in great territory. Yeah, he also was put in a situation where Neil split up with him and their money had been stolen. So he didn't really have any other means available to him. And Neil refused to give him his forwarding address. And I, I don't know if that meant that um, John Candy knew that he had the wrong credit card at that time or if he discovered it when he attempted to rent the car. I guess that would be a key piece of information, right? Cause well, yeah, because you'd, you'd have to sign for it, right? You've got to use, yeah. the, use the card, and then you have to forge the guy's signature? Yeah. Of course, the bigger deal ends up becoming when the when the car is ruined. I mean, Neil's the one on the line for that. You know, potentially, right. back then, I mean, a car like that probably cost about, you know, uh, maybe 6000 bucks or something like that for that car at that time. Yeah, the wood-sided uh, town and country, is that what that was? Something like that. I mean, it was not it was not a luxurious car, other than it had uh, power seats, which at the time was somewhat unusual, although apparently not very good power seats. <laughs> and and a very resilient radio, as we discovered. Very resilient, very resilient yeah. Well made radio. I want to know the brand. Yeah, apparently it's uh, apparently it's GM, GM so, brand radio. So let's get into that part because I found that kind of a, a fun scene, and we can pick this apart a little bit. Um, so during the Ray Charles song, Dell's like smoking and playing along with the instruments, tapping the keyboard and and doing the saxophone thing, and then he gets his. Um, arms caught and everything, and, and they almost veer off the road and die. But uh, it's right around there where he flicks his cigarette, and he thinks he's flicking it out the window, but it rebounds, ricochets back into the back seat, and smolders for a while. And then 
when they're pulled off to the side of the road because uh, they were going the wrong way after their spin out and they almost get um, hit by the semis they get like squished in between them and and John Candy turns into the devil uh, that the the car that starts on fire when they're out retrieving his luggage that spilled out into the road um, and then they go to the motel room and they have this like bonding moment where Steve Martin kind of gets over being angry with Dell because he's out there freezing and lets him stay in there. And they have this heart to heart talking about their wives and drinking these little mini uh, tequilas and rums and whatnot. And they go to Jamaica, man, or down to Mexico, which I'm sure would get people in trouble today to, to talk like that in a movie. Right. Uh, but uh, as they're leaving the motel, they're trying to rock their way out of the snow embankment and they crash into the motel and then they just flee. So like more wanton destruction. And I feel like that that was also an inappropriate thing. I mean, I'm sure the motel is probably insured, um, but I would imagine that their insurance policy would have required that they have a um, like a legitimate guest there because, I mean, he, he stayed at that motel based on like sharing his watch with the guy, like giving the watch. And um, I wondered if, if they considered that the watch was so valuable that they could raid the minibar uh, as part of that or not, you know, because he... He bartered to get access to the hotel room that night for the watch and like seventeen dollars, uh, but I don't know if that would have included the mini bar. Seems like that would be uh, an additional expense. So I, I just threw a lot out there. Definitely would have been additional expense. But let me just make one point. After okay, so he's doing the dumb thing, and you know if you find it funny, great. I mean it's fantastic that it you know some people find this funny and some people don't. People like me, cynical assholes like me, don't find it funny. But just because he was being so stupid and you know when there's a point at which you are putting other people's lives in danger for a joke is just not okay with me so when he's driving down the road and he wants to take his jacket off and he gets it stuck and he doesn't want to slow down and stop the car to do it safely while steve martin is you know sleeping next to him you're putting not only your own life in danger but you know steve martin's life in danger and that is just absolutely not okay with me but so then he's driving down the road and he spins around, he spins out, he goes off the, at the exit, and he spins out. And then he, he's doing all these, you know, spinning around, spinning around, and he gets all turned around. And he doesn't, who when I don't know if you've ever been turned around in a car, I have, you take a second to orient yourself. You take just a second and realize, okay, now I was just coming from that direction, I'm going this direction, and I need to go this direction. Which way did I come from? Oh, yeah, this way. You take a second, but he doesn't. He's such an idiot that he just blithely just gets back on the road, and he happens to be going down the wrong way. Now, I don't know what world he comes from. I assume he's a traveling salesman, so he's used to traveling a little bit. But who gets on a highway on the left? It's always done on the right. Always. Unless you're doing one of those little loop-around ones, but then you're looping around. You're always getting on merging left. Always in the freaking United States. I'm sorry. You should be accustomed to this. You should know. But he doesn't. He's All of a sudden, he's getting on left and merging right, which should trigger something in his dumb brain, but it doesn't. And it should also trigger something in Steve Martin's brain. And then there's a whole scene where he's, they're talking with somebody across on the other side. They're yelling at them, and they're just, like, playing it off. Like, bleh. Anyway, just really super annoyed me. And I don't know. I, I'm, I guess I just, I'm the only one that was super bothered by it, but that's fine. Um, in terms of the, the, the mini bar, yeah, absolutely. They should have gone up and settled up and known that they wouldn't have any money. So you just take one for the team and you don't eat anything that night. It's fine. But in reality, you would have called your wife and they would have come down and it would have been fine. When they crash the freaking hotel and then there's bail, yeah, absolutely not okay. That is destruction of private property. 
and they're liable for it. Absolutely. Uh, I, I like to think that Steve Martin, after this movie's over, makes a few phone calls and wires some funds to some places. But also, yeah. what did you guys think about the um, the car, the um, the cop stop? where they just impound the vehicle because this is a government situation where they're like, you know, they decide what's safe. Whereas, you know, these two people are deciding what's safe. I thought it, that was an aggression. I, I, you know, if it's a private property situation and you're driving the car at, you know, some unsafe speed on your, your road, then you have every right to stop this person and be like, Whoa, what's going on here? You can't even tell how fast you're going. That's something you need to get fixed, obviously. But you know, you I would give them the option or the 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 chance to drive off my road, you know, uh, at a safe speed. Um, it wouldn't have required me yeah, violently impounding. confiscating, yeah, the impounding of the car. It, with the status world that we live in, I could see that being a, a law, but an immoral one. What what I want to hear your guys' thoughts on that, though, and anything else that I've said and ranted about. I, I agree that the um, I agree that the uh, private roads would have the right to prevent a car that's insufficiently safe from getting on the road because they may have liability or it may be liability to other customers. And the impounding, not the case. Uh, I agree with you about the destruction of property of the, of the motel. It's like, look, you, you traded 17 bucks on a watch for this. You did not make up for this problem. I understand that you're desperate. You just want to get home. But, you know, you had options outside of this, you know, and I, I don't understand. I agree with you. I don't understand why when he's 100 miles away, he wouldn't just call and bother his wife, who they seem to portray in the movie as being, I don't know, not terribly emotionally stable. Like, she's, she's, she's crying because he doesn't get home uh, from the airport in, in, right amount, in the right amount of time or something like that. And she's just absolutely elated to see him when he gets home. Like, you know, you haven't been home in years. I just, it's, it's, it's been two days. I mean, come on, you know. Um, right. yeah, she also seemed suspicious when he first called and said that the flight was delayed. She's like, what do you mean you won't be home? What's going on, Neil? I don't get it. Are you seeing someone on the side? You know, that kind of a thing. Like, when, as if being an account exec for a major company is not demanding war for something, you know? Right, and flight right. delays happen all the time. And, and she was in Chicago. She should have known that, yeah, it's fucking snowing, man. Like, they closed the airport there because it's so bad. There's like a blizzard or whatever it was. Yeah, she seemed unreasonable, for sure. The, the, yeah. She, she seemed to be written for plot convenience as to have some kind of a conflict as opposed absolutely. to an understanding person, normal human being that would totally understand. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And be concerned about her husband trying to get home. Yeah. Well, and, and not particularly demanding about it. And, you know, the only thing he's missing is one of a million children's plays that happened throughout a child's, you know, childhood. And, right. um, you know, maybe being, a, you know, an hour and a half delayed for Thanksgiving dinner or something like that, you know, it's like, eh. I mean, I know it's a, I know it's a pain. You know, you want to have it on this special day, but you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I like Thanksgiving. I don't put a ton of cloud into it. I prefer other other holidays personally, but you know, obviously, it's family together time. I get it, you know, but you should be having that like at least a little bit every week, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ideally, but I, I you know, uh, very pe people live you know very hectic lives, and you don't get all the time to spend with family that you'd like to, and. I can understand why she would be annoyed, maybe if this is something that's happened multiple times in the past. I wish maybe in something in the script would have said something like that. Maybe yeah, well, chronically absent. There is apparently like a three-hour version of this movie somewhere oh. out there. Like, this movie was originally much, meant to be much, much longer. Um, mm. So probably more like a Groundhog's Day where it's like he's having an entire 
reorientation of his worldview and priorities during this trip, you know, thanks to thanks to Dell, who, you know, we, we again, this is coming back to, you know, what what I think I said before about Dell is that he seems to chronically just be incapable of seeing more than about like a minute in front of him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the beer thing, the credit card thing, the car thing, like he just does not take the option that, you know, he, he's always living in the moment and only in the moment. Yeah, I found it interesting, like, when uh, Steve Martin took that shower, because he'd been wearing the same underwear for days at that point. Uh, when he gets out of the shower, the bathroom is destroyed, because apparently uh, Dell had gone in there and, like, left his dirty underwear and his socks everywhere, used every towel. The right. floor was sloppy, wet, and disgusting. <laughs> yeah, completely inconsiderate. And the guy was just never considered, yeah, his, his traveling partner's needs. Right, yeah. He. I mean... It's like he's a friendly guy, and he'll compliment you frequently. He'll say, you seem like a real nice guy. Man, I, I really just enjoy talking with you. Hey, how about I, I, buy you a, how about I buy you a cup of coffee, a cocoa, and you know, a drink to make you feel better? Like, he'll do those sort of considerate things. Like, he'll give you things, but he's not very considerate when it comes to uh, refraining from activity. Right. I also found him rather dishonest when he was selling the shower rings to raise some funds by saying it was like Nelson Mandela's like whatever. and Signature, signature earring or something. Yeah, yeah, making up stories for for each one and selling them to these girls and and all of that that seemed pretty dishonest and that was uh, you know a pretty like major a, plot feature. Yeah, and like a false uh, advertising type fraudulent sale, you know. Yeah, sure. you yeah. know that. I mean, I I can't disagree with that. Um, other than maybe you know we'd always sort of be tempted to do the same thing if we were in a desperate situation with no credit cards and no cash. Yeah, and it's not like this movie is like. Okay, we're going to make an ANCAP movie here and stay true to the, to the NAP. <laughs> right, exactly. But this is still a world where, like, Western Union exists, where, you know, he could call up his wife and have her wire him some money. That's, that's a thing. Yeah, in the it 80s, might take, yeah. like, an hour or whatever, but, you know, I, I understand. A lot, you know, you got to make the characters do dumb things in order for there to be a movie, in order for there to be conflict, because otherwise, you know, he just gets home and nothing happens. But... Yeah, uh, they just seem to do things that a normal human being would not do for comedic effect or for plot convenience. And yeah, it just it more annoyed me than than tickled my my funny bun, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah. hey, let's uh, let's wind this one home. I only have a few minutes left before uh, my wife needs to take off for this birthday party. So let's uh, let's make it make it home. Uh, Dell finally uh, gets picked up by Steve Martin back at the train station where there's a, a cell phone ad and a America West airline ad about flying to Phoenix for cheap. So two, two interesting points I noticed in that because the cell phone would have solved most of the problems in this movie. Um, mm. but after going on a, uh, a flight that gets delayed, they go on a train then they go on a bus then they go in a rental car and then finally on a milk truck to get home. And then, uh, Steve Martin's like become a, a new, uh, more appreciative guy. And, and Dell's revealed that his wife has been dead for years and he doesn't actually have a home because emotions like he decide that he just wants to travel all the time now or, or whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, let's bring this sucker home. What do you guys have for a final rating and review and, and summary? Well, personally, I can't rate it black and gold because I don't think it's it's that good. Um, I think it's I think it's a good movie to watch once a year, right around Thanksgiving, and sort of laugh with. Uh, maybe once every couple of years. It's not the kind of thing I watch every year. And I have other movies I'll watch every year. So there's something between red and gold and red and black. It's maybe it's uh it's it's golden it's golden it's golden blue. Like you're a capitalist but you're a Democrat. So it's you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's a new rating. Yeah. I had a black and gray before on a movie where I wasn't quite sure which way I wanted to go with it. So like an agorist. Right. Okay. There you go. 
yeah, so I'll go with I'll go with uh, gold and blue. That way, it's you know it's it's capitalist and that's good, but it's Democrat and that's bad or something. All right, so not necessarily non-aggression, right? Mob exactly. rule, mob rule. Yeah, it's right. Demo- it's 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 rule it's ruled by tragedy of the commons. <laughs> All right, Robert, your summary and review. Well, yeah, I, I hated this movie. I thought it was just a whole lot of nothing. I, I thought it was trying to be a, a comedy, and it never made me laugh, except for that one scene with the lady lifting the, the big trunk. But um, I did appreciate how the characters kind of revealed themselves through their interactions, and that um, Steve Martin kind of like showed his heart at the end where he invited Dell over to his house. I thought that was a really nice moment. Even though he didn't like this guy, he kind of begrudgingly has some affection for him and, you know, took some sort of, I don't know if you want to call it pity, but just some kind of love type, humanly, you know, love, sympathy for him and invited him over to his house. So I thought, I thought it ended well, despite all the, the ridiculousness that happened along the way. Um, if there's a three-hour cut, I can only imagine the ridiculous things that must have happened to delay them that much. But, um, yeah, big time uh, <clears throat> black and red for me. I do not recommend this movie. I, I wouldn't sit through it again unless I absolutely had to um, and I will not be revisiting it. I think that there's much better stuff by these two guys. I thought Steve Martin has been used way better in far superior movies as well as John Candy. Um, So yeah, I would recommend other movies that they're in, not this one. Daniel? Well, I'm going to say that this was one of those movies that is sort of an 80s classic. It's John Hughes, uh, but it doesn't age well. Uh, like we've said, the technology solves this, and a lot of the problems seem to be somewhat believable in the beginning half, and then the second half of the movie kind of goes off the rails, so to speak. But I'm still going to give it kind of a, a a nostalgic black and gold, because I do enjoy the characters, and, and I have um, a fondness for John Candy, who died shortly after this. I think Steve Martin's a funny guy, and it, it is entertaining for what it is. I mean, it's not meant to be like a hard-hitting <laughs> emotional movie or anything. It's meant to have like a, a little bit of slapstick. Uh, to it. Um, and then the other thing is that, uh, what is the other thing? Uh, it gave us plenty to sort of dissect, I think. When we first thought about doing this movie, I, I didn't realize that there'd be as much to actually talk about to fill a nearly hour and a half show. So uh, good on you guys for, for coming up with good stuff on this. And also, uh, I've just been informed by my wife that she has taken off to go to this birthday party without me. So we could potentially do some Kathleen Turner Overdrive if you guys are game for it. Let's do it. I'm, I'm all about turning the frogs gay. All right. We have the documents. <laughs> I've got dirt on Hillary, guys. I've got dirt on Hillary. All right. So we're going to hear about uh, the professional asshole's uh, suicide uh, shortly here. Uh, but before we, before we get into Kathleen Turner Overdrive, I just want to tell you guys that um, – this has been episode 50 of the Actual Anarchy podcast. You can find this at actualanarchy.com 50. If you like what we do, check us out at the actualanarchy.com slash tip jar page where you can find our Patreon link. That's at patreon.com slash readrothbard. And also we have a Thanksgiving special coming up that's going to come out on the 22nd, so the Wednesday right before Thanksgiving. That will have uh, Walter Block coming on to discuss the movie Poverty, Inc. So that'll be a really fun one, really interesting. He, um, he wrote a paper on it, and so we're going to get into the economic nitty-gritty about that. But until then, I uh, wish you guys well. Happy holidays and all that. May your safe travels uh, be better than what happened with Neil and Dell in, in this movie. And uh, we're going to go into uh, Kathleen Turned Override for our Patreon supporters in just a few moments. So uh, thank you very much, and good night, everyone. Take care, everybody.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do